This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State Representative Brittany Pedersen says the only reason her mother is off heroin today is because she had her involuntarily committed. Her mom had struggled with addiction for almost 30 years. Pedersen hopes she can help other Coloradans avoid such an extreme measure. She chairs a bipartisan committee that last week endorsed a package of bills designed to address the opioid crisis. Brittany Pedersen is here, and so is her mother, Stacy. and welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Brittany, your mother was addicted to painkillers and heroin. Will you take me to a moment or the moment as you were trying to get her help when you thought... Something has to change in Colorado, maybe the law, an obstacle that you ran up against. Absolutely. There were there were two specific moments that I think highlighted uh, how broken our system was or continues to be. Uh, my mom was significantly overprescribed opioids 29 years ago. Uh, she became wildly addicted. And with the awareness here in Colorado and nationally, there's been a lot of pressure to reduce the overprescription of medication. When you do that irresponsibly, though, and you don't bring people down over time and you cut them off drastically, you actually create a situation where they're ripe for heroin abuse. That is to say, if they don't have easy access to the pills that they're addicted to, they turn to that very strong drug. Exactly. So uh, my mom was drastically cut off of her uh, medication. And so uh, she always talks about the thing that she fears most is not death. It's actually withdrawal. And so she, like so many Coloradans, turned to heroin. Okay, so that was the first critical point. What was the second? When she finally started saying the words that I had waited 29 years to hear, that she wanted help and she wanted to stop. And uh, she was waiting for weeks, actually, to get into West Pines for detox. Medicaid only covers three days of detox to make sure that you basically don't die during it, um, but there's actually no treatment after. This is an inpatient program. Exactly. So my mom was waiting. She was on the wait list. Um, My dad came home that morning and found her. Um, She was was, uh, overdosing. She was aspirating. Um, We had to take her to the emergency room. I was actually presenting a bill, and I got a text message that my mom was in the ER at Lutheran. And so instead of actually going to the detox that she was going to go through that she was on a wait list for, which was only three days, which is not even close to long enough, she went into the ER and she was in critical condition for a week. That, that was a function both of the wait list and of uh, potentially the, the help, the support there is for people financially to get into programs. Absolutely. All right. I, I'm wondering, <coughs> Stacy, if you could elaborate on this notion that we heard from your daughter that you fear more than death, you fear withdrawal. Why, why do you say that? Withdrawal can be physically and mentally painful. Uh, your body aches. You hurt. Um, and mentally, you can't sleep. You're you're uh, so conditioned to the medication that you can't function, and you'll do anything to survive that period. Did you hit a rock bottom, or uh, are there lots of rock bottoms? There's there's quite a few of rock bottoms, mostly being. Um, uh, hospitalized for overdose, and um, I don't really have many memories of that. But it uh, 
towards the end, it got to be too many. And I don't, whether uh, my usage became more or if it was a better product, but I overdosed. And, and you're speaking of heroin in this case. Yes, heroin. Yes. And, and talk to me about that relationship between pain pills and heroin. Uh, well, my doctor cut, cut me off of my pain medication fairly quickly. And, um, and I knew I was getting sick and I was introduced to uh, the heroin by a next door neighbor and um and needles did not scare me um i did mine subcutaneously i don't know if, if you know what that is but um that is to say you injected it yes uh-huh. yes and it was easily acce- accessible um and it took away my withdrawal and so from that point on, I needed it. You were the, the classic definition of self-medicating. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through some of the specific bills that have come out of this bipartisan commission on opioid abuse in, in just a moment. One would allow for places where people could inject drugs under the supervision of healthcare workers. Another would get money from the federal government to pay for residential rehab. Uh, But uh, Brittany Patterson, state representative, I want to ask you about President Trump declaring the opioid crisis a public health emergency. What do you hope that most results in in Colorado? Well, this is a a public health crisis, and uh, I'm I'm supportive of their commitment to streamlining the state plan amendments, uh, making sure that we're actually addressing some of these issues with our Medicaid program. So uh, I'm very excited that we had bipartisan support here in the state, and I'm hopeful that we can move through the process quickly. Let's let's just translate a little bit of that for folks. The idea here is to get Medicaid to pay for residential rehab, correct, for opioid addiction. Yeah, this is one of those gaps, (coughs) excuse me, through, through my mom's experience that I actually uh, saw I didn't realize that this wasn't covered uh, until I saw my mom going through this, where she was cut off going through withdrawal, and there was nothing that she could do. So she was going in and out of the emergency room, um, you know, hospitalized from overdosing, and the doctors would stabilize her and say, "I'm sorry, but there are no treatment options available." It's one of the significant gaps that we have here in Colorado. According to the Denver Post, it could cost as much as 173 million dollars a year in Colorado if Medicaid covers uh, extensive re- rehabilitation in, in uh, inpatient, and 48 million of that would have to come from the state. Wh- where do you get that kind of money? Well, so we actually passed a bill last year to look at the feasibility of including this benefit. So we're going to have a very comprehensive study that's going to come out. It was supposed to be on the 1st of November, but it should be out in a week or two. And it's going to look at what the cost savings are and evaluate the ER visits, the criminal justice system, uh, you know, making sure that we have productive citizens again. So this is actually going to save our state a significant amount of money. 
And this is this has to be a priority. There are too many people who are suffering every day. Even if it's a savings over the long run, there is the upfront cost. So is that money that you hope to perhaps recoup from some of the pharmaceutical companies uh, who are less than transparent <clears throat> of, about the effects of opioids? I know I, that there's a lawsuit, for instance, in place. So that that absolutely could be part of us. Uh, the costs are looking at, you know, 2020. So we have time to go through um, looking at how we're going to actually address this issue uh, and be fiscally responsible in the state. Um, what's happening right now at the state level here in Colorado and nationally is there are lawsuits against the uh, uh, the companies who misled the public and misled doctors about how addictive these drugs were. And we are in a crisis right now and we cannot pay for this ourselves. So I think that they absolutely need to play a role. And uh, I was looking at bringing a bill to actually create a fee for sales here in Colorado. The problem with that is that that would go to the patients who are currently taking medication instead of actually going to the companies who need to help support the process towards recovery. Arguably the most controversial measure that you may bring before the legislature next session, next year, would be creating a supervised injection facility for heroin users in Denver. Participants would get clean needles, they wouldn't be arrested, and staffers there uh, could jump in in cases of overdoses. Uh, was this a tough one to get past the bipartisan committee? We we continue to listen to all of our colleagues on the, you know, th- this was a long effort over the summer to make sure that we were addressing issues as it came up. We significantly narrowed this to just being a pilot program in Denver because city council right now wants to move forward with actually creating uh, this uh, option for people. This is really bringing people out of the shadows and increasing the likelihood of them actually living through that day but also having access to treatment and recovery. Um, These are people who are just trying to stay better, who are trying not to go through withdrawal, and many of them are desperate for help. And so this is not, this is just a piece to look at um, ensuring that they live through this, but also providing access to treatment. And Stacey Pedersen, there were several occasions where you overdosed, and it sounds like you were unmonitored at that point, and it could have cost you your life, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Fortunately, I was rescued each time, even though they say that I died, but I was resuscitated and taken to the ER for a short period of time. And then the ER at some point had to turn me out with no with no options of how to get help. And Brittany's making this very aware for people like me who want help. Is it possible that that um, a syringe exchange program could encourage drug use and achieve the opposite of what you wish to achieve? I don't think that uh, I understand where the perception around some of this comes from. Um, this is not promoting this. This is making sure that that we're not uh, spreading HIV, that we're not spreading hepatitis C that we're keeping people alive today and increasing the likelihood of them actually moving towards recovery. That they encounter a safety net there and that potentially they get connected to services that could get them off the drug. Uh, Another of the proposed bills that this bipartisan commission will float uh, imposes a seven-day limit on some opioid prescriptions, except in cases where a doctor decides more are necessary, say in treating cancer. 
I do want to ask about about the pendulum here. Is it possible that it swings too far and that doctors become afraid to prescribe opioids, even when it's the right move, uh, and that patients are in unnecessary pain as a result? So this is something that we've been very cautious of in Colorado. We've seen in other states when they've had uh, pretty drastic measures to reduce the overprescription that people are being cut off and ripe for heroin abuse. So we've seen that number skyrocket across the country. Um, so we want to make sure that we're doing this responsible and over time. Uh, that's why we we have exemptions in this statute, and we've been working with the doctors all along to make sure that we're addressing some of these unintended consequences. We're hearing, at least anecdotally, that some doctors are already drastically cutting back on the opioids they prescribe because they're afraid of, of perhaps federal intervention. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, my mom has been a victim of of this as well. And that's why she moved to doing heroin. So I'm very sensitive to this. We also have a a bill that's doing provider training and making sure that we're going out and training doctors on when to prescribe opioids and when to recommend medication-assisted treatment and also uh, access to inpatient treatment. So this is really a spectrum of care, uh, and, and it's critical that we're out in the communities bringing awareness for doctors and and education. And we've just touched on some of the bills that you'll bring to the legislature in the next session. But I'd like to wrap up, Stacey, with you. You're currently living in a a drug treatment facility. Is that right? Yes. It's uh, uh, the only way I was able to get there was by Brittany, my daughter, putting an involuntary commitment on me because the access isn't real so easy, but she made it um, um, accessible. But that's a tough choice for a daughter to make. It is. It is, and and I did I, that with my brothers too. Yeah. So, so this is you. You did it with their consent, with their help. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, she was. Uh, she was telling me, "I'm not signing your papers," and I said, "Well, good thing I don't need you to." Well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is it like to, to speak out about your own experience here, Stacy? And what is it like to see this translate into, into policy from your daughter? In the beginning, it was very, very embarrassing and hard for me to speak about. Uh, but Brittany's made me very aware of how important it is that somebody speaks for us addicts. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your time. You heard from Democrat Brittany Pedersen. She represents Lakewood in the Colorado House, and she chairs a bipartisan committee tasked with fighting Colorado's opioid epidemic. That committee is bringing forward six bills to the next legislative session, which begins in January. And she joined us with her mother, Stacy, who has struggled with addiction for the better part of 30 years. Now, a major health care provider that's looking at alternative pain treatments. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Robert Curley makes his living as a truck driver, but seven years ago he was loading drywall when a gust of wind knocked him off the trailer. Curley fell 14 feet and hurt his back. For pain, a series of doctors prescribed a variety of opioids, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin. In less than a year, the 45-year-old says he was hooked. I spent most of my time high. Laying on the couch, not doing nothing, sleeping, dozing off, falling asleep everywhere. He lost weight. He lost his job. His relationships with his wife and kids struggled. Curly remembers when he hit rock bottom. Three beers reacted with an opioid he was on, and soon he was fighting to breathe. I was taking so much morphine that our respiratory arrested because of it. 
I stopped breathing. An ambulance arrived, and EMTs administered the overdose reversal drug naloxone. Curley was hospitalized, but as the father of a 12-year-old son, he knew he needed to turn things around. After seven years of being on narcotics and in a spiral downhill, the only thing that pulled me out of it was going to this class. The only thing that pulled me out of it was doing and working the program that they ask you to work. That program is Kaiser Permanente's Integrated Pain Service. It's an eight-week course that costs $100, designed to educate high-risk opioid patients about pain management. So these two numbers, 50 and 100. So if you're over these two doses, that's a risk factor. Will Gersh is a clinical pharmacy specialist. He's teaching a class to patients battling addiction at Kaiser's Lafayette offices. Today's topic, the science behind prescription drugs. So basically, the the overarching message here is like, the higher the dose of the opioids, the higher the risk. Upstairs, his colleague Amanda Bai, a clinical psychologist, highlights a key element of the program. It's integrated. Bai says on one floor, there's a doctor, a clinical pharmacist, two mental health therapists, a physical therapist, and a nurse. We brought in all these specialists. We all know the up-to-date research of what's most effective in helping to manage pain. And that's how the program got started. Kaiser tracked more than 80 patients over the course of a year. It found the group's ER visits decreased 25 percent. Inpatient admissions and total opioid doses dropped 40 percent. Bai says the team helps patients taper off opioids and explore the benefits of alternatives like exercise, meditation, acupuncture, and mindfulness. We found that we've had really good results of getting those patients unstuck from the mud, getting them moving, and living the life they want to live. Family medicine doctor Heidi Klune says sometimes a simple pain prescription can escalate to addiction. Our goal with all of our treatment is to take that patient off that opioid island and build that bridge and get them back to functioning with society. Klune says early data show the program has reduced costs. Similar programs in California showed a reduction in the number of prescriptions and pills per patient. That's according to Kelly Pfeiffer, director of high-value care at the California Healthcare Foundation. Her group released case studies of three programs like Kaiser's. We've seen great success with these models that are integrating complementary therapy, physical therapy, behavioral health, and medical care. Pfeiffer says a key strategy is to taper patients off opioids rather than cut them off before they're ready. She says one challenge is scale. Big systems are the ones that can afford programs like this. Another is payment. Some insurers won't pay for some alternative treatments. Others have separate payment streams for different kinds of care. Frequently, behavioral health and medical health are paid for by entirely different systems. Kaiser's integrated pain service has given some patients a second chance. Robert Curley, now a veteran of the program, sometimes shares his story with other patients. I got my life back. I can sleep. I can eat. I can enjoy things. To cope with pain, Curley starts his morning with stretching and a version of Tai Chi. He calls it Mai Chi. He practices deep breathing. His advice to others suffering from pain or addiction? Do whatever it takes to walk away from it. Like, no matter what. Trust me, it gets better. It, it gets 100% better than where you're at right now. Better for Curly means he's back at work, once again able to make a living as a truck driver. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A 40-kiloton nuclear bomb exploded underground in Colorado in 1969 near the community of Rulison. That's near Parachute. Here's the report from the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. The earth shook like jelly. There was a muffled sound. And rocks and dirt broke loose from surrounding mesas. In Grand Valley, a few bricks fell from a few buildings. This was part of Operation Plowshare, the U.S. government's effort to find peacetime uses for nuclear technology. Over the years, drilling for natural gas has crept closer to where the blast occurred. And state regulators recently relaxed standards for radiation testing at those drill sites. For more, I'm joined by Emily Hornback of Western Colorado Congress in Grand Junction. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We'll get to this rule change in a minute. Uh, First, though, the Atomic Energy Commission was trying to loosen up natural gas by exploding underground a nuclear bomb twice as powerful as the one that destroyed Hiroshima. Uh, You know people who were there in 1969. What do they describe? Well, um, you know, I think that the news clip summed it up pretty well. Uh, The area within a six-mile radius of the blast site was evacuated, but people were allowed to watch the explosion um, from that six-mile evacuation zone. And, you know, I've heard stories of folks who brought out their lawn chairs to watch the show. And, um, you know, it was a giant kind of earth-moving wave and a sonic boom that people could feel through the air. And there were definitely stories and reports of people whose homes were, their foundations were cracked and, you know, their chimneys were cracked as far away as rifle. Hmm. So people remember it. There's there's fewer and fewer and fewer people around who still remember it, but they do. The explosion took place more than 8,000 feet down. And in one sense, it worked. It did release natural gas, but there there was a problem, I understand, with that gas. Yes, the gas, in fact, became radioactive, and they weren't able to use it. It doesn't seem like that would be a surprise, that the gas would be radioactive. Isn't that what they would have expected? Well, you know, they were very convinced that they were going to be able to capture all of the radioactivity within a melted dome underneath the ground. Ah. Um, but as, you know, it was kind of the history with our experience with radioactivity, things didn't go as planned and it didn't stay contained within this dome. And all of the surrounding gas within a certain area was was radioactive as a result. And, you know, they didn't find any radioactivity at the surface immediately after the blast, but they did, once they started pulling up the gas samples, you know, saw that it was radioactive and then had to flare off about 430 million cubic feet of radioactive gas that they just burned into the atmosphere. Oh. And you say there are fewer and fewer people in that part of Colorado who remember what was called Project Rulison. But in general, how would you say it's viewed in the community amongst those who remember it? Um, Well, you know, I was talking with one of our members who actually lives in Meeker outside of Project Rio Blanco, which was another site where they detonated three bombs um, in 1973 after Project Rulison. And to her, like everyone remembers this whole time when they were blowing up these bombs in quote unquote nuclear fracking, as she described it, as a multimillion dollar boondoggle that threatened everybody's lives and livelihoods. Um, Nuclear fracking. That's a good description of it. Yeah. yeah. So this is still uh, an active area for um, oil and gas drilling. And and drilling used to be prohibited 
within a three-mile radius of the blast site. But in 2008, that was reduced to just half a mile. And that triggered a lawsuit that went to the Colorado Supreme Court, I think. Uh, Justices ruled essentially that people with mineral rights really hold the power there. Um, The gas is theirs to exploit. Uh, Help me understand what folks in the community are afraid of when it comes to the legacy of this blast site. What what are you afraid might be uh, disturbed or released if drilling is not done properly? Well, folks are concerned about the radioactivity of the gas. Western Colorado has a long history of um, kind of misinformation and misunderstanding about the impacts of radioactivity on people and homes. I mean, we are also the home of the uranium mining district that actually mined the uranium that went to, you know, the Project Manhattan sites. And later on, in that whole period, people were encouraged to use uranium mill tailings in their homes. We paved our streets with it. And then, you know, 20 years later, people, the government came back saying, oh, actually, that's radioactive. That shouldn't be near you. And millions of dollars was spent to pull out this radioactive material out of people's homes and our streets. So we just, the people, the culture here has this very strong association with the legacy of all these radioactive sites, whether they're mines, whether they're bomb testing sites, whether it's Project Rulison, folks have a history of being misinformed and misled about what the impacts of this radioactive material would do to them. And I imagine so that, there's that a, leads to a certain amount of distrust. Um, state regulators definitely. state regulators have again changed drilling rules near Rulison. This time it doesn't affect how close you can drill, but requirements for testing gas samples from wells for this radioactivity. So now testing has to occur at only the closest wells. Greg Duranlo, an environmental manager at the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, says this change comes after decades of testing in the Rulison area by the Environmental Protection Agency, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and most recently under the COGCC's testing plan, which came out in 2008. The data that's been collected since then, and it's all available on our website, has not found any elevated um, tritium is the primary radionuclide that they're looking for, and it's not been found in elevated levels. And a link to that historical data can be found at CPR.org. So, Emily, if there hasn't been any radioactive material detected over all this time, uh, isn't this the right time to relax the testing rules Uh, again, it's testing wells that are closest to the site uh, and not those that have already shown shown to be negative. Well, it's interesting that you would use the words all this time to describe what has only been 48 years since this explosion took place. I mean, we're talking about radioactive material that has the life, you know, the half-life of millions of years. So, that's a drop in the bucket in comparison to how long these radionuclides can be around and could possibly migrate around. You know, they ad- the COGCC admits in their own document that, no, they haven't found these trace minerals yet. They don't think it's possible for these materials to migrate out of the formation. However, they said that the only mechanism through which these radioactive materials could be brought to the surface is through natural gas drilling. And so by the fact that they're allowing natural gas drilling closer and closer to the site, that increases the possibility that we could bring some of that to the surface. That you think that adds to how kinetic the environment is there around Rulison. And 
Um, I just want to be clear, uh, Emily Hornback of Garfield County, uh, pardon me, of the Western Colorado Congress in Garfield County. Um, are you opposed to oil and gas drilling in that region at all? Or is it just that you think the right safeguards aren't in place? Well, our organization has only ever worked for the, you know, rights and safety of impacted people. And we fundamentally believe that people have the right to feel safe in their homes and their properties and that their water and air resources should be clean and not threatening. And so specifically, one of the changes is getting rid of um, water monitoring and surface and groundwater monitoring within this particular radius. And tritium, as the fellow mentioned, is one of the more possible radionuclides to come out of this site, and it's very possible to bond with water. So the fact that they're getting rid of a water monitoring program, it just alarms people because that's one of the fundamental things people need to live, and they want to be assured that their water resources are, are safe to drink. As this history becomes more distant, do you find that community reaction or community response to these kinds of changes lessens to some degree? I don't know if it lessens, but I would say people don't necessarily even know it happened, right? You know, rifle, parachute, these were communities of only a couple thousand people when this explosion happened. The populations in a lot of those areas have grown, but not everybody actually knows about these sites, either the one in Rolison or in Rio Blanco. So, you know, some folks who did have concerns, I mean, people went out and actually peacefully protested at the site in when the Project Rolison happened. In 69. Our founder was actually one of those folks um, who went and tried to stop the blast. And so it was, it, was, it was a big issue. It was very controversial when it happened. But a lot of those people have passed away and more people have moved in who don't even have a clue that this happened. And there's also lots of other projects and extraction development proposals that happen in this area. So people are often being pulled in a lot of directions in terms of what they need to pay attention to at any given time. And of course, you have the competing tension of the folks who own those mineral rights uh, underground and who are also thinking about, about their property. And we have we totally understand that folks have a right to develop their mineral rights, but we think there needs to be a balance between property right owners and mineral right owners. And, you know, the suit you mentioned was a suit that was brought by our organization specifically to give adjacent landowners the right to to contest permits. Because at the moment, unless you are specifically the surface owner or the mineral rights owner where the actual drill rig is going to go, you don't have a right to challenge those permits. And so when Project Rulison happened, and then as in in the early 2000s, when companies first started proposing to drill there, other residents wanted to contest those permits out of concern for the radioactivity that could be brought to the surface, and they were not given voice um, under current state law, and that was then affirmed by the, the Colorado Supreme Court. So we just believe that property owners have, you know, adjacent property owners have a right to feel safe in their homes and should have a meaningful voice over these processes. Thanks for sharing this with us, Emily. Thank you so much for having us. Emily Hornback is the Garfield County Community Organizer for Western Colorado Congress, and she joined us from the CPR studio on Main Street in Grand Junction to talk about the legacy of Project Rulison. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
During the Rwandan genocide in 1994, roughly 800,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days. When the nightmare was over, there was a country to rebuild, and a lot of that work fell to people like Aloysia Inyumba. After the tragic events, there was a general feeling among the women that time is now. We have to do something now. The heaviest toll of all this conflict falls on the women. Either a woman has a mother, either a woman has lost a husband. So the genocide has changed the family structure. Today, women hold 64% of the seats in Rwanda's parliament. They are cabinet members and judges and run local governments. There's a new book about them called Rwandan Women Rising, and the author has deep roots in Colorado. She is Swanee Hunt, co-founder of the Women's Foundation of Colorado and a member of the state's Women's Hall of Fame. She's former ambassador to Austria and is now based at Harvard University. And Ambassador Hunt, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Ryan. I'd actually like to learn a little bit more about Aloysia Inyumba. Uh, she's something of a heroine to you. She was a leader in the reconciliation after the genocide in Rwanda and helped find homes for hundreds of thousands of orphans. Tell me a little bit about your friend who died in, uh, I think, 2012. Yes, uh, died in her 40s. Uh, you know, she's so soft-spoken, and she always was at the beginning, kind of like a Baptist preacher who's, who starts uh, softly and then winds up. And huh. uh, she was a major, major force, at really the leader organizing the women of Rwanda. And they created these village councils because when a woman was with men, she was not to speak. This wasn't like this, you know, really progressive country for women at all. You know, they had zero employment except out in the fields. So they created women-only councils, 15,000 of them for these villages. And that's the work of Inyumba. I, I call her by the her last name, which is very common for her. Um, and so uh, there were all these villages, and they were in. you would run for a place on the village, and then you would run for the next level, you know, which, which was smaller, and run again. And there were these six levels. So by the time you got to the top, you were really out there. You had name recognition. You were used to telling your story, and you could run for office. And then she was the person who then shepherded it so that there was also, in addition, this push from the bottom, the pull from the top. She was very, very close to the president, and he and other members of the top uh, political structure and in Yumba kept pulling up these women and Several got on. Several of the women got onto the uh, constitutional drafting commission, and so they were instrumental in getting a thirty percent set aside of seats. In other words, like a quota in the legislature. And so you had all these women who'd come up through the women-only villages. I mean, village councils, and then they were ready to go into those thirty percent of the seats. And that's how you built year after year those numbers in the uh, parliament, yeah, and it was because of Inyumba. Let me say that, that Rwanda was the first country, I believe, in the world with a majority of women in its parliament. And I think it's really helpful to understand the precarious place women had before the genocide and why the genocide was so transformational for women in particular. So before, uh, as you said, uh, they were very limited. They couldn't own land, for instance, the genocide happens, and a post-genocide census finds that 60% of 
Tutsi survivors, for instance, were female. Many suddenly head of households and sole providers for their surviving children, other young family members, or friends they had taken in. And so in some ways, the the genocide and its effects necessitated a role for women who, who largely were survivors. You know, I was talking to a top political leader who told me that after the genocide, it, it was so traumatic for the men and they tended to recede. And you find this all over the world. I've worked in 60 countries uh, on an idea called inclusive security. And that's about how you bring women in to rebuild after a conflict. Mm-hmm. But Rwanda was the perfect example. You had chaos there. And the chaos cracked open the culture. You couldn't go back to the way things were. And, you know, the women, Let's and this, this story is repeated really truly. If hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of times I heard this kind of story. And uh, it was repeated millions of times. I didn't hear it millions. I didn't need to. So a woman is gang raped, okay, until she's unconscious. And then she she comes out of her – she becomes conscious and she has next to her an infant and she has three children who have been uh, slaughtered. Oh, uh, that That's the kind of situation. But what does she do? Like, she has to put that infant to her breast. What, I mean, what, what are her options? And then she has to figure out how to bury the corpses of her three children. Like, what are her options? Like, so in the moment, she has to. I mean, I, I'll keep saying that. So out of that then comes this, this strength. And the, for, may I give an example? Sure, sure. And, and let me just Anunciata. say that, that, that rape, yeah. rape was, was a tool during the genocide. And, and you note, women and girls impregnated during attacks had to choose between agonizing options. Terminating a pregnancy is illegal in Rwanda, though many clandestine abortions likely took place with serious, lasting health consequences. You say some women abandoned babies born of rape or gave them up for adoption. Others decided to raise the children and deal with their own conflicted feelings. And so the the, the rapes had, had lasting effects for sure. And, and you were going to mention someone else that you uh, profile in this book, Swanee Hunt. The book is Rwandan Women Rising. Well, but before I do, I want to stay with what you said. I was... I was um, at an organization, uh, call it 15 years ago, and it was widows who had been raped and they had AIDS. And so there was one woman who came up to me and she held out her hand um, to take mine. And, you know, all it was just skin and bones, right? And she said to me, um, I'm going to die soon and I want you to tell my story. I don't want my story to die with me. And that is the basis of my writing this book. I, for me, it's not my analysis. It's what the women said. It's what I put it together, right? They were telling me in bits and pieces what they had done. A lot of people knew that the, the statistics you said, you know, 64% of the parliament, blah, 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 blah. But people didn't know how it happened. It, in fact, even the Rwandan women hadn't stepped back and said, how did we do this? So that was my part. But it was really the women's voices that I bring out here. And so, one, one of them belongs to, I, I heard you saying her name earlier, uh, this woman, Annunciata. 
Um, yes. And, and yes. on the first day of the genocide, her husband was murdered. She fled with her 18-month-old son, and she was at the time eight months pregnant. What, what happened next? Well, she had to find shelter. People were, were frantically trying to escape the genocide perpetrators uh, who were armed with clubs and machetes mostly. And so she hid in a doghouse with her little one. And she gave birth in this kennel, in this doghouse. And then then the, um, the soldiers come and they've driven away the genocide perpetrators. And she comes out. It's not like then the social services surrounded her. I mean, there were no social services. So she goes into a church and she's sitting there and some other women come in. And first there's this, you know, this fear. And then they come together. And so fast forward, they end up with Annunciata and these other women every day cooking together. And they're, But this is the important thing. They're cooking not just to feed Annunciata's children, but the other women are actually the wives of men who have been now imprisoned for perpetrating the genocide. So here you've got Annunciata whose husband has been slaughtered by men like the ones in prison, if not the very ones. And she's fixing food to take to them. Prisons don't have any food, okay, in in these parts of the world. So the women have to take the food every single day. So it's that is the symbol to me of how women stepped into the breach here and helped heal their country after that genocide. And when they did that at this granular level, they created a model for sustainable peace and security all over the world. And so that's what I mean by inclusive security, where you bring in the women's uh, contribution. And that applies to our country, by the way. Yeah, it's, you know, I want to you say know, that I, you, you've co-founded the Women's Foundation of Colorado, which started in the mid-1980s. And I, I wonder if you saw a similar working style there. Oh, absolutely. So so here's the deal. I I was the one who was doing most of the fundraising with Dottie Lamb, as you know, First Lady. So went down to Colorado Springs. And everybody listening to this knows the difference in cultures between Colorado Springs and Boulder. So I go down to Colorado Springs and I say, hey, would you give gazillions of dollars to help start this women's foundation? And, you know, we're going to focus on on strengthening women so they aren't at the mercy of social services so they can go to college, so they can get jobs, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And so the women in Colorado Springs say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is great because it's not part of the women's movement, that feminist group. And so then I go up to Boulder and so I say, hey, you know, would you give gazillions of dollars to this idea of starting this women's foundation, et cetera? And they say, Oh, I've been a feminist all my life. This sounds this sounds perfect. And then then we create this board, and you know we're all together on this board, and it was magic. It was magic because these women. Then we bring in women who are working with migrant workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're all there in this room together. And that's what I mean. That's like the village councils, the women's councils. So that becomes a training ground for these women. Uh, a lot of them represented the grassroots on that board. And, and so Hunt, when I, I see that, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say that, that, that there's a risk perhaps 
in in talking about women's roles in Rwanda and here in Colorado, as you were witness to, of of um, painting it as all sweetness and light. And you know, women are are just as capable as men of being political and confrontational and and perhaps petty. Uh, talk about the nuances there, William. Well, I'm, first, I, I'm not going to accept your premise. Okay. When you say they are just – maybe they're just as capable of being just competitive or whatever the word was. But they aren't. They don't do it. I mean, women – I mean, if you think about the political parties in the U.S. and without becoming partisan here, you just think in in recent memory how women have, have come – come across the parties to to break the gridlock. And, you know, we see that in the headlines, but it's happening among women in the Congress uh, just in all day long. And we have new research that shows how many bills they're co-sponsoring compared to the men. And, and we've interviewed like hundreds of them, and they say, oh, we're much more collaborative. So uh, that we see here in our country, what we see in countries all over the world. And my goal was to give voice to these Rwandan women, not so people can know about Rwanda, but, you know, we do a lot of hand-wringing about, oh, my, we're so divided. Oh, you know, what are we going to do? I listen to pundits all the time, and I say, well, you know, so tell us, what are we going to do? And they stop with, oh, we're so divided. And I, I say, come on, come on, people. If you don't have any ideas, let me give you one. Right? Because if the women in Rwanda could help heal their country from wounds far, far deeper than we'll ever know, and if they could cross these unfathomable chasms, and then we're going to say that we have these ideological divides, and so this is the end of the world? You don't accept that premise either, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so we we, yeah. <laughs> we have a, about a minute left, and I wonder if you might leave us with um, the, the role of women in Rwanda today and whether you think that it will continue to be strong. Because I, I want to point out that the Rwandan president, uh, Paul Kagame, who actually was, was quite instrumental in, in boosting women up, has changed laws such that he can run again and is becoming, I think, in, in some people's views, dictatorial. Uh, what does what the future hold in, in just the last few seconds here? Sure. And this book, to be really clear, this book is not a political analysis or sociological sample. I was tell, I, What I'm doing, I'm, I'm putting forward the untold story, which is the role of women. And I asked the very question that you're asking me. Is this really just for this period of time? I asked that over and over in Rwanda. I asked men as well as women, and they said there's no way when you have these kinds of numbers and this amount of strength and this much experience among these women, there's no way that they're going to slip back to to zero employment and uh, and be at the mercy of their husbands. So uh, they are a model. They are a model to us and to the world. And we would do well to look very, very closely at how they did it. That is Swanee Hunt speaking with me earlier this year about her book, Rwandan Women Rising. She's former U.S. ambassador to Austria and teaches government at Harvard, Hunt used to live in Colorado. She co-founded the Women's Foundation here and is in the state's Women's Hall of Fame.
That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner or follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.